Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. Hi, everyone. In the midst of this unprecedented time, I thought it would be helpful to hear from James Aitken, the extraordinary macro strategist who specializes in understanding the functioning of the financial system. I reached out to James today with one key question in mind. Are we facing a systemic risk outside of what we see happening in the economy and the markets? That conversation follows. Please stay safe and healthy. James, thanks for doing this on short notice. These are clearly unprecedented times, and I thought it would be terrific to just get your view in laying the landscape of where we've come and where we are and where we might be going. 
Well, thanks very much, Ted, and good morning. Thank you for having me as well at, at short notice, and thank you to all your listeners. I think it's important when we try to sketch out where we are and where we're going to reflect on the initial conditions before this market smash up. I think it's very important. And typically in these kind of circumstances, all the commentary focuses on the moment as opposed to conditions in markets that created the vulnerabilities to begin with. And the facts are, if it had not been for certain, let's call them risk parity celebrities caught wrong-footed, had it not been a vast number of relative value guys getting stopped out on their 40 to 50 times relative value fixed income books, it would have been someone else. And I think we need to reflect on the fact that the real source of the current instability in markets may be that over the past several years, we have engineered a monumental bubble in risk assets that was inevitably going to meet with a pin. And over the past month, Ted, we've encountered two pins. One is a serious health issue with enormous economic consequences, which we're slowly starting to address. And the other is a geopolitical power struggle between the Saudis and Russia over oil. And just to finish on this point, one of the historical roles of interest rates is to control the amount of leverage in the system. And the cool eye of financial history might conclude that by driving interest rates to ridiculously low levels, while simultaneously driving financial intermediation out of prudentially regulated banks, we or policymakers perhaps effectively uncapped leverage in the system and motivated unconstrained growth of leverage in the non-bank sector, which unfortunately conspired to set the stage for the painful reckoning that we're working our way through at the moment. So Ted, just to say that before we just start to think about where we are and where we're going, we do need to reflect for five seconds about the initial conditions which are important. So James, is that to say that those initial conditions might mean that this was inevitable, maybe not this, but something we couldn't necessarily foresee in some, say, long-term normalization. Yes. And look, predicting that actual event is futile. Suffice to say, a lot of things were stretched. We also knew that primary dealer balance sheets and large bank balance sheets around the world are necessarily more constrained as a result of what happened in 2008. But also that does rather limit their ability to intermediate markets, even markets as volatile as the ones we're seeing today. And just on that, again, we never knew what the trigger would be, what the pin would be that hit the bubble. You can't predict that. But it is safe to say, based on any historical measure, that credit spreads were very low, realised and implied volatility across a range of asset classes was low, cross-asset volatility itself was low, and that the leverage applied by a lot of people to keep up with the game, what we might call fear of missing out, was very high. As you look at what's happened over the last couple of weeks in the markets, it seems that the speed of this 
drawdown across equities and credit is violent to say nothing else. Do you have any views as to why that might be the case compared to other crisis moments in the markets? I could take a stab at it. It's dangerous to adhere labels and descriptions to specific events. It'll come out in time, the enormous leverage and frankly, the enormous losses that have been sustained during this period and the cool eye of financial history will judge them. But I think the speed of the move, let's think about what often causes abrupt moves in any financial instrument. And it's not just an unpredictable regime shift. It's that people might be over-reliant on short-term market financing to underpin their positions. That's often a nascent problem. Too much overnight repo to and basically refinancing their positions every 24 hours, which can be dangerous. You've also had changes in correlations as a result of two enormous brewing supply-side shocks with COVID-19 and the dispute between the Saudis and the Russians. And often when you get these exogenous shocks, correlations flip. And there were an awful lot of strategies out there, Ted, predicated on the fact that, A, correlations across risk instruments, most of all between stocks and bonds, was stable and predictable. And if it's stable and predictable, you can model leverage on that and be somewhat comfortable in your returns. And second thing is that volatility itself was predictable. And if volatility is predictable, I can scale up my exposure to all sorts of risk assets around the world. And I have to say that people talk about volatility targeting. It's a phrase that gets chucked out there a lot. And there are any number of instruments and indices that could help an asset allocator target volatility. But really, Ted, the past several years have been all about volatility scaling. All these gigantic multi-strategy businesses, absolute return strategies and others, it's all about volatility scaling. When implied volatility comes down, I have to increase my exposure to keep up with the play. Oh, implied volatility goes up. I'm cleverer than everyone else. I can hedge before everyone else. I'm going to be okay as I seek to reduce my books. And really, again, volatility scaling or the assumption of volatility scaling, I think had a large hand in the disruption we've seen. And just to finish this point, there was a marvelous article written in the autumn of 1987 by an extraordinary Chicago trader called Richard Dennis. And Richard wrote of the slower fool theory. And his idea was, and it's so brilliant, that it's perfectly okay to own all the same instruments as everyone else, same QCIPs, the same issues. It's perfectly okay to apply the same amount of leverage. But don't worry, I'll be quicker than everyone else to get out. And we've just had another real-time reminder of that fallacy. There's two things I'd like to touch on with you while we have the time. One of them that I think, as you take a broad brush, there's a lot of topics we can talk about. But the one that has to be most on people's minds is this notion of, of the system and the potential for the system to be broken in a left-tail risk way in the same way that happened after the Lehman bankruptcy in 08. And tied to that... What's happened relative to that with the policy response is something that I think you understand the plumbing as well as anybody I know. 
And so maybe start there with the policy response and we can get into sort of what does that mean for a real existential risk to the markets as opposed to something maybe we can understand in terms of a drawdown and the health issues and maybe that comes back in an unknowable period of time. Right. And to paraphrase, if I may, Ted, think about the near-term complexity of the problems, why central banks are trying to respond, and then quite frankly, so what? And how might we think about it? And what should we do about it? So let's go through that process. Look, I've spent an awful lot of time with my clients over the past month, that's no surprise, but also an awful lot of time with key policymakers around the world. And obviously, I'm not the only market participant who's been doing that, trying to help people understand what's going wrong and what's going right. And one thing is clear about the central bank response. And if one looks carefully, every key central banker around the world is saying the same thing. The very strong actions with potential for more that central bankers have taken thus far are designed to provide a bridge to the necessary medical and fiscal response to address the COVID-19 disruption. So this is not 2008 about saving the financial system from itself, about flooring asset prices or anything like that. To be clear, if the combined effect of central bank activity is to buy financial markets some time, great. But none of this is about flooring risk assets per se. It's about a bridge to the necessary fiscal response. And on that, we can see how countries around the world are slowly getting lined up with fiscal policy. And we can talk about that later. But think about incentives for central bankers and governments all around the world, Ted. We have a double supply side shock. COVID-19 is what the IMF would call, or IMF has this label called sudden stops, which they used to apply to emerging markets when capital inflow to an emerging market stops dead, currency falls, current account deficit problems, all sorts of things. But what we've actually got now is a nascent, synchronous, global, sudden stop. And calibrating that is very difficult. That's why all these central banks are no longer providing forecasts, which is unprecedented because nobody knows. So we have the COVID-19 supply side shock combined with the energy supply side shock as MBS and Putin duke it out. And that's the first point. Now, the second point is, as the world either is forced to lock itself down or voluntarily self-isolates, we are building the risk of a simultaneous demand shock because as we all stay at home, other than endless binge watching of Netflix and Amazon Prime, we're not really going to be getting out and about. Small businesses are going to suffer. And the engine room of global demand has always been the US consumer. So the risk is if we don't take very strong steps, we will have not only a double supply shock, but a demand shock. And the worst thing of all you can throw on top of that is a financial crisis. So to be clear, the fiscal policy is aimed to address not just the supply side shock, but also the health shock of COVID-19 and the energy dispute between the Saudis and Russia. The demand shock is slowly being addressed, for example, in Hong Kong, handing out citizens' checks. That might be what everyone do. Mr. Macron in France last night set a new bar. Basically, nobody will default. 
nobody will go bankrupt. Now, that might be the ultimate whatever it takes. And that will slowly serve to underwrite the risk of a demand shock. And on the narrow point of central banks, their primary objective right now, Ted, is to ensure that their financial systems are functioning, that their banks are liquid, that their banks around the world can borrow from their local central banks against a range of collateral. In the case of the ECB, at the extraordinary generous rate of minus 75 basis points, eligible banks can borrow up to 2 trillion euros in total from the ECB at minus 75 basis points. I mean, you and I should start a bank, mate. That's pretty generous. In the case of the Fed, thinking about your listeners, I can only imagine how surprised they all were when in the context of a US economy that's doing fairly well, the Fed cuts 50 out of the blue. Well, it was unprecedented. Well, hasn't been seen since 08, but they could see what was happening. They could see from their business contacts. They knew they need to provide more liquidity. And now we have a Fed committed to frankly open-ended asset purchases. And Ted, I'll just pause for a second here. Whether it be the Federal Reserve, to a lesser degree, the ECB, certainly the Bank of Japan, the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, the Bank of Canada, etc. Their primary concern is ensuring that the financial system is open, that banks can fund themselves, that people can transact even if the prices are not ideal. And most of all, the key challenge of the Fed today is to restore a liquid, tradable, hedgeable, perhaps investable treasury curve. Because there were times over the past week where there was no treasury curve and the treasury futures market was not functioning. And you cannot hope to have a somewhat stable financial system if you have no operational risk-free curve. And that, Ted, is the number one priority of the Fed, which is why they have leapt into purchasing assets in an effort to restore market functioning. Where would we see the lack of functioning of the treasury curve as you're paying attention to that? This is where I'm afraid we need to get a little bit technical. For the past five years, there has been a positive carry trade available to relative value fixed income traders around the world, and it has been very profitable. And for reasons we won't get into, treasury futures are trading more expensive than their equivalent duration treasury bonds. So for example, if I'm a relative value fixed income fund, I could buy a 10-year treasury, lever it via repo, which got very tight for these guys last September, and I could sell the equivalent amount of 10-year treasury futures against it, and let's say, for example, earn positive five to seven basis points. Now that's normally a fairly stable, predictable relationship and it's fixed income arbitrage 101. There's nothing new about it. People have been doing it for decades. So I say to myself, Ted, I am going to lever up a long treasury bond position. I am going to sell a tremendous amount of futures against it. And all in all, I might run that position for four or five years, 40 to 50 times levered. And I know that sounds extreme, but that's what people do. And it worked very well for five years until it didn't. So that's the first indigestion problem for the treasury bond market. And then surprisingly for a lot of people, what promulgated the colossal unwind of all these RV positions was the Fed cutting those 50 basis points the other week out of the blue. Because what underpins 
the financing of these gigantic relative value trades, long treasury bonds, short the same treasury futures contract against it, is guess what? A stable and predictable relationship between repo rates and these overnight index swaps. Now, I don't want to get too technical, but consider this, just pure maths. If GC repo rates are unchanged and the Fed cuts 50 basis points, then overnight index swaps, a measure of US short-term rates, are going to collapse, which is what happened. So the irony is that the Fed cutting triggered a run on financing of a lot of these RV guys, which then forced them all to delever, which caused all sorts of discombobulation in the relationship between treasuries and treasury futures as people tried to unwind all sorts of things. So that's the first indigestion problem. The second one was a bunch of risk parity evangelists who have had the most phenomenal three decades. Let's not forget that. Risk parity has been a genius strategy for decades. What was unusual about the past five years is that not only did the equity component of these risk parity strategies go up, but so did, Ted, the levered fixed income, quote unquote, hedge. So it was a money machine on both legs. And then unsurprisingly, when you apply a lot of leverage, when you're telling everyone cash is trash, and the correlation between stocks and bonds changes for any reason, in other words, bonds stop going up and stocks are going down, you have to degross your book. And those two unwinds, the relative value smash up and the risk parity smash up, caused all sorts of indigestion across primary dealer balance sheets. They were restrained from providing as much intermediation capacity. On top of that, let's not forget, you had all these trading teams spread across remote sites and spare bedrooms in the tri-state area. It's very difficult, I should say, to execute 10 million DVO1 of a Treasury Futures basis trades from six different bedrooms in Connecticut. So all of that conspired to dislocate the Treasury curve and promulgated the Fed's response to buy at least $700 billion. So really a whole range of indigestion problems. And then as you work your way through from treasuries to other types of credit and eventually equities, there's always been this concern with the explosion of ETFs and particularly things like high yield ETFs, that you had this mismatch in liquidity. And have we seen anything in the last few weeks that would indicate there are trouble in the area of credit? At the risk of being controversial to anyone who understood credit markets, the idea that ETFs were ever a self-liquefying instrument, that is to say that ETFs create liquidity in their underlying reference securities, was always just buy-side propaganda. Absolute garbage. And to see dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of credit and fixed income ETFs, not to mention commodities and other ETFs, trade at multiple standard deviations, discounts from their NAV, I think has put paid to all that ETF propaganda. But Ted, when we think about next steps in the dislocation or what to watch out for, look, this may sound strange, but equity markets are going to sort themselves out. As I think you and I and, and our listeners know, there are some already some extraordinary values out there on specific issues in, let's just say, equity land. Astonishing values already in equities. 
Credit is what I'm really worried about. And I'll tell you why. People have said, oh gosh, high yield up until the past 48 hours is well behaved. Investment grade is widening out. Or my gosh, you know, leverage loans have been well behaved. Well, actually, there's a better story there. And it's a classic end of cycle phenomenon. People are selling what they can, not what they have to. So the reason that investment grade credit has been broadly widening out is because some of it's trading. The reason that leveraged loans have been broadly well behaved is because people are selling all the liquid leveraged loans they have and all the less liquid stuff is unsellable. And that, I'm afraid, is the same predicament for high yield markets. To some extent, people felt that these credit and bond ETFs, and let's just say HYG because everyone knows it, people thought that would be a getaway car for the credit bubble. That is to say, I can buy puts or put spreads on HYG, I can short HYG. That will offset any dislocation in credit and help me stay with the game. Wrong. And what we saw at the first true test of all these credit liquidity vehicles, they failed. So what do we got now? I fear the pain in credit has barely begun. People are selling what they can sell, and even that is drying up. Today, and we're speaking on Tuesday morning, New York time, today we're going to start to see the first sizable BWICs. And to be clear, bids wanted in competition is what that jargon means. And we're just starting to see the first attempts to sell AAA tranches of CLOs in size. And it's coming out of these warehouses because people are trying to de-risk. So they have all these warehouses, and I'm sure your listeners are at least vaguely familiar with all these conduits from 2007 and 2008, which caused a lot of indigestion. So Ted, I'm very much on guard in credit here. I will be fascinated to see if and where these BWICs clear, because when one parcel of credit clears, it reprices everything. As was always going to be the case at the end of this extraordinary cycle, price discovery is troubling. If one widely held bond trades, everyone has to remarket. And that's where you get into a dangerous cycle. So to me, it's thinking about credit. Now, to be clear, lest that sound just a tad alarmist, there's an awful lot of credit to be sold here. For your long-term fully funded listeners, this could be an interesting moment because you might be able to name your price even up the top of the capital structure if you either know what you're doing internally or have partnered with the right external managers. So it's not to say, oh my gosh, the sky is falling. It's to say to listeners, look, the liquidation event, if you will, or the redemption event or the sale trimming event in credit has barely begun. If we think the treasury curve suffered from a bit of indigestion over the past week, imagine what the indigestion is going to be like in credit markets. So we need to be on guard. And if we dare imagine the next several years, we're going to have interest rates at very low levels. 
we're probably going to have some element of yield curve control in the United States. I don't know yet, but some element of asset purchases are going to be semi-permanent from the Fed, which probably serves to keep intermediate treasuries low, which means the discount rate that liability-constrained allocators are looking at is going to be astonishingly low, which means no matter how difficult the current period is, I have to start sketching out a strategy for the sort of credit I want to buy and hold with a one to two to three year view. And I know it's easier said than done. I know everyone trots out Mr. Buffett's aphorisms and everyone says, oh, we'll be fine and stuff like this. But as you and I both know, and as our listeners know, the hardest, hardest, hardest thing to do is to allocate at a moment like this. So to just summarize, I might say credit tsunami in some sectors is upon us. But for the fully funded investor with a plan, they should be rubbing their hands and licking their chops. Now, alongside of that buying opportunity, there is this question that if you go back to 2008 and things were going down, you then had real problems in the system that took things down a whole nother level. Are there signposts that you're looking at today to make sure that the integrity of the system itself will be fine in terms of liquidity and any other metrics that are important to say that if you're buying something on value, that that's all you have to worry about? If we're thinking about value, there's a whole range of things that come to mind because obviously you're asking both in terms of the integrity of the system itself or what I call plumbing and also how to think about QSIPs and issues. I mean, look, you know, dividend sustainability, item number one, default risk, item number two. Although if Mr. Macron has now set the bar for how every Western nation will respond, nobody's going to default. And just on that narrow topic, and to be clear, I need to reflect more on this. I don't doubt for a second that Mr. Trump is going to bail out US airlines. I don't doubt for a second he might have to think about hotel and tourism as well. But in the case of airlines and the case of American, for example, that spent $15 billion on buybacks, if I'm going to give American a bailout, where do I bail them out in the capital structure? Is it a loan guarantee? Is it equity? Where is it? And how should other investors in Americans' capital structure think about it? That's a key question which we don't know yet. So some caution is required. Then the other thing, is, which we haven't talked about since January, it took an enormous market smash up to completely derail all the discussion of ESG. But ESG's not going away. And on the one hand, we've got this supply shock and this oil war underway, which is going to accelerate the high-yield energy bankruptcy cycle. It has to. So one needs to be extremely picky if one is thinking about picking over the long-term value rubble that might lie in the debris of oil and gas in the United States. And if one's thinking about winners and so forth, do we need to pencil in $10 oil as our margin of safety? Perhaps we do. So I'm thinking about, okay, do we need to be extra cautious here? But in the case of credit, I think the supply is going to be so large that there'll be a number of listers that will be able to name their price, even up the top of the capital structure. And that's a very interesting thing to consider. But in the terms of the very, very narrow plumbing, there's a range of instruments I'm looking at. A lot of them are quite technical. They're all related to the cost of intermediation, the cost of bank balance sheets, 
JP Morgan CDS, things that people have talked about for years, such as LIBOR OIS, repo versus OIS, secured versus unsecured funding spread. Ted, I don't think we need to go too much into them because they're all related to one fundamental thing. What is the price of dollar intermediation to the world? That's the critical thing. And look, I have to say to those listeners who are downloading their plumbing advice at the moment from social media, please be careful. There's an awful lot of hyperventilation out there about various parts of the dollar plumbing and the financial system. I'm afraid to say it's pretty clear to me that people haven't actually learned that much in 12 years. There's a lot of misinformation. But please know this. Central banks around the world have barely started their response in terms of cheapening the cost of dollar intermediation. Okay, so the Fed's done an awful lot, but they have the capacity to do a lot more. Today, for example, the Bank of Japan did their first dollar liquidity operation in, gosh, 12 years, and $32 billion was taken down. That's a start. The Bank of Japan also did a unique operation, which has got no commentary, which is offering dollar liquidity against JGBs. Now, that is different. And that is very powerful because it helps unlock a lot of dollar liquidity that is otherwise trapped in the Japanese financial system. Perplexingly, the ECB is still holding off until tomorrow to do their dollar swap operation, but I would imagine the takedown will be very large. So all I'm counselling here, Ted, is that, look, there's any number of things that are not working terribly well in the dollar plumbing, whether it be basis swap spreads, on the run versus off the run treasuries, quite frankly, anything any listener would anticipate to be a bit bunged up right now is bunged up. But all I'd counsel is let's give it 24 to 48 hours to allow these central bank dollar liquidity operations to take hold. There are some early encouraging signs that the dollar liquidity has start to flow. So if I, if I heard that right, there is some at least intermittent mucking up in the plumbing, but there isn't anything today that should cause us concern that the system itself won't work its way through as the virus does. And at some point in time, maybe we see all kinds of different conditions, a few weeks, few months, whatever it may be down the road. Yes. And can I say, my friend, thank you for drawing me back to your original question, which I completely overlooked. To be fair, let's contrast today with 07 and especially 08. Unlike 2008, every regulated financial institution and all the big ones has more liquidity, has more capital, and generally less leverage. If we assume that central counterparties are robust, given all the derivatives that are now centrally cleared, the financial system generally has less counterparty risk. The point being, Ted, that if I add all that up and then think about these gigantic liquidity buffers that every large bank has, and finally, that every large bank on the planet has effectively pre-positioned collateral or pre-approved collateral with their central bank, it is difficult to imagine a Lehman-esque type event. But I'm afraid that's the end of the good news. Because over the past 12 years, we have, as intended, transferred all the risk to non-bank 
financial institutions. So the risk is now in non-bank financial institutions and often in vehicles that own illiquid assets with daily liquidity, which is absolutely absurd. So what I'm worried about is not the regulated, prudentially regulated banking system. I'm not worried about them because in theory and in practice, they can take their entire balance sheet to their friendly local central bank and be tidied over for not just a week or a day, but perhaps term, which is no bad thing, and at a very cheap rate. So they can create some positive carry on their balance sheet to muddle through. Ted, what I'm worried about is all these non-bank financial institutions that have taken on more and more risk to keep up with the play. They don't have liquidity buffers by definition. They don't actually own the assets. The allocator does. So these gigantic buy-side firms don't actually have liquidity buffers, although I'm happy to report in the case of some Canadian pension plans, who, as we both know, are so enormous, they have taken steps over the past couple of years to create some kind of liquidity. So what I'm watching for, and I don't want to mention names, but I'm actually watching credit default swaps on some of the world's largest listed asset managers. Not because I think any of them are a zero, to be clear, but because it will be a metaphor for how the counterparties of the world's largest listed asset managers are thinking about some of their counterparty risk. And what's happened with the levels of those swaps generally over these last couple of weeks? They have gone wider, which is no surprise. Put it this way, if JP Morgan CDS, and I want to be very clear, JP Morgan is the ultimate too big to fail because they have created themselves as the ultimate too big to fail. That is Diamond's, frankly, genius. If JP Morgan senior CDS has doubled, and I don't want to mention names here, but certain buy-side firms have more than doubled, which to me makes a lot of sense. And then, Ted, I've been concerned about this for many years. If I'm an allocator, and this is the absurdity of our modern financial system, if I'm an allocator to a particularly large buy-side firm, and I say to myself, gosh, I can't redeem, but how do I justify to my superiors that I've done my best to hedge? I start shorting that stock. And I know it's absurd, but I've actually seen it happen over the past two weeks. And that's not a good look. It's not a good look, frankly, also, when certain hedge funds are shorting the shares of their prime broker, who at the end of the day determines whether that hedge fund stays in business or not. So just to be clear, for the benefit of listeners, prudentially regulated banks, I'm not terribly troubled by those fellas. Non-bank financial institutions who may have done some silly things, I'm watching like a hawk. And final point, all the best buy-side firms with whom your listeners, to whom I should say your listeners may have allocated over the past several years, they have, as the banks have, invested tens and tens of millions of dollars in upgrading their risk technology, in being able to take a firm-wide view of all their credit exposures, to reposition assets in more appropriate vehicles, to create new strategies where they take exposure to credit via derivatives 
as opposed to cash bonds, you know, endless list of precautions that the best guys have taken. But boy, oh boy, it takes a tremendous investment budget. It takes persistence. It takes tremendous technology. And most of all, it requires employing people who have experienced more than one cycle to really understand what the risks are. And I contrast the best, whose names will occur to us all readily, with all these newbie bolt-on asset managers that have emerged over the past 10 years. Do they have one homogenous risk system inside their businesses? Or, like Deutsche Bank over the past 10 years, do they have all sorts of systems bolted onto each other that don't take a homogenous risk exposure view across their firm? These sorts of things are going to matter. Great. Well, James, thanks so much for taking the time. We will watch alongside you. And I know hope is not a strategy, but it does seem a time to hope for the best. I think it does. And I'm grateful for your time and I'm grateful for your listeners' time, Ted. But the good news is that the central banks may not necessarily be coordinated, but they have room to do more to give us a bridge. The fiscal response is starting to accelerate. And if I could leave listeners with one takeaway from our chat this morning, we have a double supply side shock, COVID-19 and the energy dispute. We have a nascent demand shock because if we're all staying at home, consumption has done a decline. The last thing the world needs on top of that is a financial system shock. And that is why the central banks are acting in such a forceful way. And they all know they have more to do. And that is to tide the financial system over until the necessary full-throated fiscal response can arrive. But believe me, and Macron set the bar, the fiscal response is coming. It's slower than we all desired. But I'd be surprised if in the US in particular, we don't have a headline figure for all sorts of things of three quarters of a trillion to $800 billion as soon as today. But we need to be patient. There's a lot of dislocation to be wrung out of markets. The dollar plumbing isn't quite where it needs to be. But I think we just need to be a little bit patient here and try to see through the other side and dare to imagine what assets we might wish to own with a multi-year view already. Great. Thanks, James. Thanks, brother. Have a good one. See you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 